Gracious God, you promise to be with us always. You've come down to be among us, to be with us here. Help us learn to be present to other people as you are to us. Forgive us for the times when we have looked for some other way. When we forget what it means to be a part of your good creation. To be part and parcel of all your loving purpose. Forgive us when we doubt. When we doubt the surprising and subversive power of your life with us. Renew us through your life-giving spirit. And help us to bring our attention to your presence now. As we hear your promise to be with us spoken through scriptures, give us ears to hear your voice speaking to us again today. Make us signs of your hope so that others will be drawn into your kingdom. Amen. They were back in Galilee, back where it all began. They were on a mountain. Well, where else? Jesus has already taught on a mountain. He's prayed on a mountain. He's been tempted on a mountain. His glory has been revealed on a mountain. And now on a mountain, he sends his closest followers out into the world to continue his work. In the Bible, mountains are places where some of the most extraordinary God moments happen. Moses, Mount Sinai, I need I say more? And this moment in this reading, on this mountain, ranks with the best of them. Here in just a few verses, we hear Jesus making clear who he is, how baptism is to be the mark of being disciples, what teaching his followers what, what, what teaching his followers are to live by and share. These verses that we've heard from Matthew's Gospels, these shape the Baptist Declaration of Principle, for those of you who know what it is. So we know they must be important. Here on this mountain, Jesus makes a promise to his disciples. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. On a mountain, said by the risen Jesus, the final note of Matthew's gospel, it goes without saying, this promise must be incredibly important. But what difference does it make to us? What does it really mean for us today? I am with you always. These days, perhaps we've become quite familiar with the formulas of polite response that help us to soften the impact of saying no to people. So when I hear someone say, I am with you always, and it's taken out of context from the rest of the text, it risks sounding a bit lame. I am with you always. It could almost sound like a platitude rather than a promise. Imagine you invite a close friend to your wedding or to that significant zero birthday party. And the friend says, I can't come, but I'll be with you in spirit. I expect you might feel grateful that they said it, but still basically rather disappointed. What you hoped for was not a vaguely affable gesture from a distance. You wanted to experience your friend there in person. 
You wanted to see her cheery smile, see how her infectious humour makes a meaningful mark on the party. I'm with you always. If that was just a, a polite gesture, a reassuring, a, a, a word of reassurance, then to change the analogy, this sort of response is a bit like the mechanical toy that a child gets at Christmas. It looks exciting until the child presses the start button, nothing happens, and his parents get a sinking feeling even before they read a note on the box that says, battery is not included. And they remember they have none in the house on Christmas day to save the moment. The gift is there, but it's rather hollow unless there's a power source, unless something flows through the gift, enabling it to function in a way that brings joy. I am with you always. As we said, Jesus' promise here is made on a mountain. It's the sort of places where things that really matter happen in the Bible. And I assure you there is nothing at all bland about this promise. This is a promise, you might say, that comes with batteries included. How do we know? We know because of what comes just before. What we've already heard as we've eavesdropped on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. You might say that in this passage that Malcolm read, the passage delivers the batteries before they deliver the promise that the battery is in power. Because before saying, I will be with you always, Jesus reassures his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We cannot hear the promise without connecting it to those words that Jesus says before. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I promise to be with you always to the end of the age. That's the power source. The authority that rules all of heaven and earth has already been given to Jesus. Jesus promised to be with his followers is already charged with a power that will never run low. So we know that any promise that runs off this authority is not an empty gesture. It really can and does make a mark and bring joy. And it's been that way from the beginning of God's story. It's that same authority, the ultimate authority of heaven and earth, through which God creates beauty and diversity out of sheer nothingness. And just to hear the whole of Genesis chapter one read out to us really underlines that for us. It's this same authority that the opening verses of the book of Genesis amazes us with again and again and again. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let dry land appear, and it was so. God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, the plants yielding seeds, the fruit trees of every kind on earth, and it was so. And also with that last one, we begin to see something of how God's authority, how God's power really works. Do you notice the number of times in Genesis that seeds start to get mentioned? It seems to me that God's authority doesn't just make things happen. It equips creation with seeds of its own, inbuilt ways to collaborate with God in nurturing the wonder and variety of life down the generations, from the fruit trees and then 
to the human beings. That glimpse becomes a vision. The authority that governs all heaven and earth declares, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And there, creation has its steward, its inbuilt means of caring and sustaining. A creature fully part of creation, but equipped with God, by God with a special responsibility. A responsibility to be an active and lasting sign of God's everlasting love. So what I want to suggest to you is that the clues are there in Genesis. The authority of God's word, the word that creates new life from nothing, that brings order out of chaos. The authority of heaven and earth is the power that brings new life. And yet it's clear in Genesis, creation isn't a puppet, puppet manipulated on strings by the divine hand. God's authority there creates, orders, equips creatures with the seeds and with the calling to take part themselves, to collaborate in God's creative work, to play a real part of its own. And I want you to keep that vision from Genesis in mind and listen again to what Jesus tells his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel. All authority has been in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations and I will be with you always to the end of the age. The power of God, the power in Jesus goes on being creative through collaborating, through giving us space to play our part. The authority has been given to Jesus. The power is his. But this is the kind of power that works to enable and equip us, human creatures, to play our part. In other words, Jesus says, I have authority, a power that's all about new life, but a power that's intended to work through what you have to offer. So off you go and know that as you go, my power, my very presence will always be with you, nurturing the seeds of new life and love that God has equipped you to sow. And that to me is what makes this promise so incredible, so powerful in the proper God-like sense. The God of Genesis is at it again. The divine power that actually has always been Christ-like, although we couldn't know it as such from the beginning, this power is showing us what God's, how God's love really works by making space for us, by being with us in the work. So I think that's what makes the difference. Jesus' promise here does not say, I will do it all for you as if we were puppeters of a master puppeteer, Jesus' promise says, I will be with you. Jesus' promise doesn't say, I will now leave you to it because you've been made with all the programming you need to manage it by yourselves. Jesus says, I will be with you always. I will be with you always the end of the age, working with us, not instead of us, working with what we can offer, welcoming our contribution, fashioning it into a glorious work of love. 
And a few days ago, I saw a poignant example of this deeper power that we sense in Jesus' promise. The power of being with another to make something happen together instead of that top-down kind of power that does something instead of somebody else for them, but not with them. Paying no attention to what they can, they can bring to the work. I saw it as I was watching the new TV drama on BBC One on Sunday evenings, Time, written by Jimmy McGovern, which I should warn you is not for the fainted-hearted. Time is a drama set in a prison. The scene in question is actually one that, if you're a purist about watching BBC and, and leave it till a week it's actually being broadcast, you won't actually see this scene until tonight. If you're like me and you just couldn't resist the temptation to get on iPlayer and watch the whole series because they put it there, well then maybe you've seen it already. Time is a drama set in a British prison and it pulls no punches about just how tough prison life can be. The main character is a middle-aged man called Mark, played by Sean Bean. Mark is serving a four-year sentence for causing death by dangerous driving. He had been a school teacher before the events, before the offence happened. But now in prison, when he tells other inmates he's a teacher, he's always quick to add, well, I used to be a teacher. And I know there are several teachers here and on Zoom will understand why it's now I used to be a teacher if you've been imprisoned for four years for dangerous driving. That is one of the things that really pulls on your heartstrings as you watch this gritty but compelling drama. You see, Mark no longer feels any sense of self-worth. He's consumed by a remorse that's come to define him. And that makes him an easy target for the bullies on his wing. In every sense, Mark is in a very dark place. Yet even in the midst of fear and despair, this one-time teacher is drawn into a work of collaborative care. One which I think in all but name is Jesus' promise here in action, the promise to be with us. Another prisoner called Gav visits Mark in his cell. He looks quite intense about something, and they gather together, just the two of them, in this cell. Gav's a man of few words. But their conversation goes like this. You were a teacher, weren't you? Gav says. Yeah, yeah, I was. Gav says, it's my 20th wedding anniversary coming up, and I've made a card. Will you write something in it? Well, what do you want me to write? I don't know, I'm no good with words. And it turns out that Gav can neither read nor write. He wants to write something special for his wife in this anniversary cast, but all he can say is, I'm no good with words. Mark has a flash of quiet inspiration. All right, then he says, why don't we start there? And he begins to write in the card, taking what Gav thinks is his weakness and taking it on to become a work of beauty. Mark says, let's start with what you've just said. I'm no good with words, let's add to it. So Mark writes in the card, Dear Jane, I'm no good with words, but I need only one, love. 
Gav is clearly thrilled and expresses it in any way he knows how. Sure, I owe you one, he says. Both prisoners have been enriched. Mark used that teacher's instinct to affirm Gav, using what he brings, even though he thought it was just a problem, turning it into a much more meaningful solution than it would have ever been if Mark says, oh yeah, I know what it is. Let, let, let me write this for you. There you go, that looks good, doesn't it? There you go, send that to your wife. Mark wants to work with what Gav has brought. Gav discovers he can contribute in ways he thought was impossible. And it begins a lasting friendship. They meet together regularly and Mark starts to teach Gav how to read. Jesus promises, I will be with you always to the end of the age. I will be with you always. And Jesus makes this promise to a decidedly mixed bag of disciples. Remember what we heard? As soon as the disciples see Jesus on the mountain, we hear that they worshipped him, but some doubted. What on earth did they have doubts about? Standing there in front of the Christ who'd risen from the dead? Well, Matthew doesn't say. But some commentators have made different suggestions about why some of these disciples were doubting. It might be that some were doubting whether they ought to worship a human being at all. That's totally unprecedented in their Jewish background and experience. They've been taught all their lives to believe in one God, one transcendent creator, maker of heaven and earth. That was absolute. And now here they are impulsively, some of them worshipping Jesus. What did they see? It's been remarked on that actually it's quite extraordinary how quickly followers of Jesus acclimatized to the idea that it was proper to worship Jesus. Maybe it's one of the better objective evidence we have for the risen life of Jesus, that Jesus was resurrected, that the people around him thought he was appropriate to worship. Totally different from what they knew before. In which case, when Jesus says, authority, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, he's reassuring them there's nothing idolatrous, nothing wrong in worshipping. Sometimes we need the hesitant as much as we need the enthusiasts in a community. When we're discerning whether some particular decision to be made truly is in tune with God's purpose, and that, of course, is a particularly topical message for us today. But there can be no hesitation for Christians in the idea that Jesus is God with us. Indeed, Jesus is God always with us. Another possibility is that the doubters were doubting not Jesus, but doubting themselves. It wasn't so long ago that this group deserted Jesus when he was arrested. Did you notice the detail in the story? Matthew tells us that 11 disciples went up to that mountaintop, 11 disciples. Judas is conspicuous by his absence. He's not mentioned, but in an unspoken way, there's a reminder that human beings have that liability to betray Jesus. It's as much a part of the story as the people who did come. And to doubters like that, Jesus' words also make sense. I have all authority. And not only that, Jesus says, I have all authority and it's to you, doubtful as you are, that I say, go and continue my work. 
Jesus' words to those who are doubting themselves are a bit like Mark's words to Gav in the prison drama. They start where we can only see weakness, and yet they transform that into a sign of love. And is there anybody here who doesn't hear this as good news for them? Because I certainly do. So that, I think, is the profound meaning in Jesus' promise. I will be with you always to the end of the age. You could say that's a promise that shows us God's third way, a way beyond either doing the work regardless of us or abandoning us to get on with it by ourselves. This is a way that renews us by empowering us, by drawing us in mixed bags of faith and doubt that we all are. That's the difference, I think, this promise makes all the difference for our lives as disciples today. It's the promise that sets us free from anxiously measuring whether we think we can achieve anything with what we have ourselves. We don't have to do that. God can use the most surprising, subversive things in our lives, our weaknesses to our eyes. What we need to get on with is focusing on discerning the moments, discerning those moments when we really can play our part, when we can see what God is already doing in the world because all authority is already given to him. So as we go to make disciples with Jesus and he with us, sometimes you might find you're kind of in Mark's role. You're the one recognizing a chance to affirm somebody else who imagines that they have little to offer. Sometimes you'll find yourself in Gav's place, imagining that you are inadequate and then discovering to your joy and surprise that even what you thought was a weakness is something that God can transform. Something that God, whose power is made perfect in weakness, can take as a spark, which he will turn into a flame. Turning our sparks into God's flame. We're going to hear a song on YouTube, which you may know, and it's a song that has an image in it, which has always spoken particularly profoundly to me of the way in which God's love works with us. Come change our love from a spark to a flame. You'll hear that several times as we listen to Graham Kendrick's song, Beauty for Brokenness. <laughs> 